drowning i had to save him this obsession with humans has to stop i just want to know more about them ariel don't poor child i can help you you can't live in that world unless you become a human yourself is that even possible that's <laughs> what i live for about you seems different. I can't quite figure it out. She got legs, you idiot. doesn't make us enemies. Rob Marshall's musical adaptation of Disney's The Little Mermaid has arrived in theaters, and to tell us about the making of the movie, today we're joined by visual effects supervisor Tim Burke. The veteran VFX pro won an Oscar for Ridley Scott's Gladiator and earned three additional nominations for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 1 and 2. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Tim, so glad you can join us today. Hi, hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. So let's start with when you learned that you were going to be tackling this uh, this classic story, what were your first thoughts? I, I spoke to Rob Marshall and John DeLuca um, via a call, a Zoom call back in sort of early 2019 when they were discussing making the film. And it was the first time I'd talk or spoken to Rob. And I was very interested by the project most of what I knew about the project was down to my daughter, uh, who watched it over and over and over again as a small child. Um, she's now fully grown and is 26 years old, but I knew it was her favourite film for so many years. So I, I went and watched it again myself just to re-associate sort of myself with the story and realised what an amazing story it is. It's, it's just a fantastic story. It has everything it's a fantastic love story. It has a fantastic villain. And as far as visual effects go, it's it was clearly going to be a huge challenge, uh, a fantastic creative challenge as well as a technical challenge, and one that had everything you could wish for from sort of 
creating a whole underwater world and the life that goes in it to realizing mermaids, you know, fantastical otherworldly beings to creating fantastic sort of ocean sequences and a final sort of um, finale of you know, a great third act battle. So from a visual effects standpoint of view, it was really, really very interesting to me. With all of these visual effects requirements, in the end, how many visual effects shots are in the movie? I think it's around 1,600. I think that was the final count, yeah. And the lead uh, vendors were Framestore and MPC, but you had, I, I believe, about 10 different visual effects companies. Not, not quite around. 10. We, we had um, MPC and Framestore as our primary vendors and Rodeo sort of coming in as a tight third, doing quite a lot of shots. And then we used um, Union and Vitality and Secret Lab to do a lot of cosmetic and cleanup work. We had three primary vendors working on all of the uh, sort of the bulk of the show. Well, why don't we start with the mermaids? Well, it was the first challenge. And having never worked with Rob before, I really wanted to get an understanding of Rob's taste. He's obviously got a background in musical theatre. He's a choreographer. He understands movement better than anybody. So I started by um, commissioning some tests to develop how a mermaid would move underwater. And we've seen various different, you know, films in the past, but I was very sort of keen to really let animation be the lead on this not to make it a technical exercise. I wanted the animators to have the freedom to make her move beautifully and gracefully and find that movement early on so Rob could give me direction on what he liked. So we we, we built a sort of grey proxy aerial, not based on Hallie, because we didn't know then that Hallie would be cast. I'm sure the discussions were going on, but we weren't aware. And we did some animation studies and... After you know a few weeks of working on different types of movement, showed them to Rob, and he really loved it. He honed in very quickly on things he liked, things he didn't like, and that became incredibly useful and important for then almost developing and designing the whole underwater part of the film. Because once we'd established how mermaids were going to move and how Rob liked them, the speed, the way they rolled, the way they turned, what they could do, what they couldn't do. Um, we could then start figuring out how to design the actual execution of the film, um, which became very clear to me, having done the animation studies and looking at how a mermaid propels herself through the water with her tail, and that movement needs to translate through the body, into the abdomen, into the chest, all the way through the body, so it looks like one complete swimming cycle. Um, it was clear that we would never be able to get an actor to really create that full movement unless they're in water. But given the fact that we wanted to control the actors and their performances the way we shot them, but more importantly, they had to speak. So <laughs> we can't film a you know a film underwater and have actors speaking. So it was very obvious that you know it would be a dry for wet shoot that would. Um, you know the basis of how we were going to approach this. The the thing I was trying to avoid was turning it into a very heavy technical exercise. Again, knowing Rob and getting to know Rob and knowing how he he works, he's a very actor friendly director. He wants to direct. He goes through a process of rehearsals with the actors. 
And then he wants to capture that performance on the day with the actors, knowing that their movements have been pre-choreographed almost. So this was a this was perfect for um, a, a complex film like this, where we were going to have to be moving actors around stage floor on different rigs. And I didn't want to go down any kind of pre-programmed robotic arm rig where we would determine what the movement would be and be in a sort of difficult position where we'd then have to sort of, if Rob wanted to change it, we'd then have to go and start reprogramming and it sort of loses the flow. So it's it really seemed that the principle for this would be to put actors on rigs that could be moved around spatially on the floor using people, stunt people, to actually push the rigs and also to introduce dance people who could help puppeteer the actors so they could actually move in a way that gave us essentially the the the, the movement of their head was what we were looking for because as i described before the the movement through the body had to connect to the propulsion from the tail and if you're held in a rig there's no way you can move your your body it, you've got to be fixed from a certain point so through these tests and through through sort of the developments of ideas, it became very clear that really all we could do was shoot the actors for their faces. That's what we were capturing them for. Um, it wasn't going to be any kind of facial capture. It was actually capturing the actors so we used their faces for real, which allows them to de deliver lines of dialogue to emote, to give us the performance, spatially moving them around on the stage floor under the you know, direction of Rob. But we would then replace everything apart from the faces and the hands with digital bodies which would allow us to then translate the movement through their bodies to make it look like they were really propelling themselves through the water it would allow us to add digital hair to create the underwater look to the hair itself so that we could control that which was very important again if you think about shooting an actor underwater with real hair Five times out of ten, it's going to be in their face. You're not going to be able to see what they're doing. It's not going to be controllable because it will do what it wants. So it will give us control on all of these elements that we can then sort of craft later on. The The process that Rob likes, as I said, is, is to rehearse. So he, he actually started rehearsing a lot of scenes with his extras and um, choreographers on stage floor, just on, on, the, on their feet, basically so that we could get basic blocking. And obviously that was not in any way representative of what would happen underwater, but it gave us a basic block that uh, once cut together by um, the editor, Wyatt Smith, we could then start to translate that in previs into, well, if the person walks from A to B on the floor, if they were to swim from A to B and they were 30 feet in water, how would that look? So we then translated all of the movements from the stage floor into previs and animation. Again, using a team of animators, not just simple previs, but proper animation using animated rigs that had been built and would go on to be the final rigs for the actual characters themselves in the films. So through a very intense, long period of previs, we translated all of those blocking performances that Rob captured into underwater performances where the actors were swimming, um, you know, an example, part of your world, such a complex sequence in terms of movement, right. but they actually blocked it all on the stage floor. And then we turned it 
around so that Hallie was swimming up, she was doing backflips, she was swimming down. And that was all led by the brilliance of the animators and interpreting Rob's initial ideas. Once we created these previews, we, we then basically had a template for an hour of the film because there's pretty much half the film is set underwater. Right. So we had this whole blocking of the whole film. It was it a was really intense uh, process, but it really gave us this incredibly tight template. In the meantime, based on what we knew we would need, the SFX department under Steve Warner had started to build and created different movement rigs, sort of um, tuning fork rigs with slip rings in them, teeter-totter rigs, wire rigs, things that would allow us to move the actors in different ways as needed on the day. From the previous, we then also decided, well, what could practically be shot with an actor? Obviously, dialogue scenes are very important. Close-ups, no problem at all. Medium shots, when they're moving more dynamically, probably not, not likely to be worth filming. We'd then do a digital character for that shot. And often, we do a transition where we start with a live-action uh, shot element of a person's face and then transition into a digital character for which we used a facial capture system called Anima. And we captured all of the actors again so that we could actually do fully digital versions of their actors for every single shot in the scene. What were some of the more complex rigs that you had to use when you were shooting live action? So the, the rigs, essentially the most complex rigs were the ones Hallie had to be in. Um, she um, did a lot of underwater training initially. She spent weeks in Los Angeles training underwater. So she really got an understanding and a feel for how it was like to move underwater. She brought that to the stage floor and she was the most complex rigs were the ones where she was in a, a circus ring and it was on a tuning fork. So she would have to, you know, perhaps simulate a swoop and a dive and a, and a you know, and a, and a sort of come to a stop or something like that. And she would have three stunt actors moving the rig around it would be a rotational arm on a base that would be able to move anywhere on the floor so it would be about six degrees six axes of ro um, rotation there and then through the circus ring you'd have two puppeteers moving Hallie's feet so she could roll and twist as if she was swimming underwater so at any one time she might have five or six people manipulating her in space so the most complex scenes we did were where we had all the sisters uh, and Hallie and Triton and Rob wanted to, where he could to shoot as many in shots as possible. So sometimes we'd have six rigs working on the floor. Sometimes people would be on wires. Some some would be on simpler rigs depending on what they had to do. But that that was that was complicated for the stunt um, supervisor and coordinator because they were trying to manipulate all these people around, especially on the floor with sometimes up to 20 other additional people moving people around. And some, you know, sometimes that was too impractical and we'd break it down and just say, look, we'll do those ones in the background digital. We'll do those foreground ones right. as production. Uh, you know, and, and as I say, we, we broke it down in advance of shooting so that we knew what would be what. And then the stunt team, the actors went into these rigs and they went through several weeks of rehearsals for every single scene where they took our previews and then they turned that into movement on the stage floor. Forgetting that 
it doesn't matter if you're 100 feet deep in the water, you can be six feet off the stage floor or even three feet off the stage floor because it was all on blue screen. Obviously, we'd remove everything and then we'd make them look where we want the, you know, where we wanted them to be in the actual shot itself. What was the experience like for the actors as you observed it? Because I would, I mean, for for many of the lead actors, I'm sure this was the first time they were using a process like this. Absolutely, Holly, obviously, did most of the work. Was truly amazing. I have to say, she, you know, she took it on board. Not only was she delivering the most amazing performance and singing as well. <laughs> In within these rigs, but she, you know, she was giving a performance and a believability. As, as you know, our work will never will never succeed if we don't believe the actor's performance in the same way as if they're talking to an animated character. And it really was her performance that sold. You know, the fact that she was a mermaid, replacing her body, putting a tail on, uh, obviously creating the animation that went with her physical movement. Uh, was so much easier when we actually had a believable performance in the first place from her. She did an incredible amount of intense physical training to be fit for 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 working on this because she was spending I, I don't know how many hours a day, but you know several hours a day, almost supporting herself through her stomach muscles, you know, in different positions because most of the time she was horizontal, and you know her legs were in stirrups, but she was actually pretty much taking all of her upper body weight through her strength of core. So she she did incredibly well. So it was kind of like a Pilates class. It, it's exactly, exactly. <laughs> and what I've been doing today, and I'm very sore. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we had different rigs for other actors. The sisters had similar, similar rigs. Um, Triton was never going to do so, so much dynamic swimming. So he was... More often, because of the nature of what he was doing, he was more upright, uh, you know, more imposing as a character. So his rig was simplified to a more of a teeter totter rig. So he was moved around in fewer sort of, sort of not such a dynamic way. Um, and Melissa had her own set of rigs, basically to be Ursula, and she she was incredible. She was game for everything, incredibly active and did all sorts of sort of performances she invented herself where she was throwing herself around, spinning. There's in Poor Unfortunate Souls, there's a moment where she does this incredible backspin and she was just doing that for, she was just said to Rob, hey, what if I do this? And and she was incredibly mobile and agile and able to do these things. But she also, there were some incredible things that we needed her to do turning upside down, doing backflips, swimming 60 feet in the air and coming back down. So again, we do transitions between a real Melissa in in camera, doing starting the backflip and then going into a digital takeover, full CG, then come back into a second shot where we would bring her in from a different angle on a different rig and combine the two elements together. There was Some shots might include four or five different passes of an actor, that were then put together with digital band-aids to stick them all together into into one shot. There's one shot in Under the Sea um, where Hallie basically is made up of four different elements where she transitions in and out of a digital character and actually the shot itself is over 30 or 40 seconds long 
and it just it just plays as one continuous shot and you, you would never know that she was shot in five different rigs to to achieve it basically at five different times i i remember there did appear to be several uh long takes yeah. in yes. some of the musical numbers like that yes. one we, we we call them widow makers they were they were very <laughs> very painful for the facilities well, you mentioned poor, unfortunate soul. So why don't we move on to how you turn Melissa McCarthy into our villain, the octopus Ursula? I mean, it was a fantastic piece of casting. And I think Melissa was made to play Ursula. Um, again, knowing what kind of performance she was going to give, it seemed like adding the tentacles was the least of our worries because she was going to really steal everything you know, in terms of her actual character. Um, we, we, we again, we wanted to do a proof of concept for Rob, um, as we did with Hallie, and we we did a very early test um, before we even had Melissa uh, on stage with a double, just to show Rob what it would be like if we moved a, a double and added and replaced her lower body with you know an octopus skirt and tentacles, which he loved, and again it told us a lot about his taste and what he wanted her to do. At the same time, we. We built Melissa, uh, Ursula herself as a grayscale model again without paying any attention really to facial features and started to look at reference for how she might move, you know, looking a lot of research material that we pulled together um, for all of the underwater creatures, but obviously in this case um, through octopus. And the way they move, the way the tentacles move, the extensions, the way the skin uh, moves on the surface and the suckers and develop tests to sort of really show how Ursula could move around her sort of lair and playing with the idea that, you know, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to be upright. She can be at any angle. She can walk along surfaces. She can be upside down. And those tests actually then, a lot of them ended up being in Poor Unfortunate Souls as sort of ideas for how she might move when she first appears and walks along the ceiling. So we we sort of developed those, we rolled those into sort of our previs. It was the same process as with uh, the other sequences. It, we blocked out, or Rob blocked out, um, scenes like Poor Unfortunates on the, on the stage floor. We took it into previs, we turned it into um, uh, an animated sequence, and then that was then broken down and rehearsed on the rigs. Melissa's rigs tended to be more of the teeter-totter based, because she more often than not was upright. She was delivering a lot of dialogue. So she was moved around spatially and she was given a nice gentle float, you know, when she was just sort of as if her, her tentacles and skirt were just keeping her afloat at times. And then, as I said before, we did a lot of takeovers. We did quite a lot of full CG shots of her when she had to do the sort of more physically impossible things of walking upside down and sort of doing backflips and the big moves, you know, big dance numbers in the musical number. Now, you mentioned earlier that you shot Dry for Wet. Do you want to talk a little bit about what was what else was required from a visual effects standpoint in order to create the illusion that they're underwater? We we referenced again. We had this incredible research team. We pulled together so much material. Um, we we looked at Blue Planet, which has got some of the most amazing reference material. One of one of the one of the problems is in reality you can't see very far underwater and you know quite often there's a lot of sediment and it's quite murky and not only that but the deeper you go the less visibility you get and after about 200 meters you can't see anything because sunlight doesn't really penetrate 
The other big problem is color disappears as well. And red is the first color to basically disappear. Around sort of four and a half meters, red doesn't register anymore. So this is obviously a big problem for a, a mermaid who has bright red hair. So we could not really follow true physics in the way light worked underwater. We Otherwise, the film would be incredibly murky, dingy, and probably mostly blue. So we, we realized from our early developments of lighting studies that we would have to open everything up, make it more colorful. And after all, it was supposed to be a beautiful underwater world. But we did also want to try and make it look photorealistic. So we created you know, an incredible uh, landscape and different environments, um, procedural corals, underwater grasses, everything from shells to anemones, just a whole library of different sort of underwater features and created all of the environments. The sets were designed by John Meyer. They were then built and put into all the different sort of stages of of, of the scenes. But as I said, we had to open up everything. So the visibility was much clearer. We allowed more depth and we more so than you would ever have in reality underwater. So then we'd lost a lot of the clues that would allow you to say, well, that really looks underwater. So the hair was a big tell, but equally, if you just let, if we put the physics in for the hair to do what it would really do underwater, 50% of the time it would be across the actor's face, it would flatten on the head or it would drag if they were moving quickly. And obviously this had to look beautiful. Rob wanted Hallie to look beautiful at all times. So we we developed simulations for the hair where we could control what it was doing. And if she was moving quickly or she was in a musical number like Under the Sea, it would be more flamboyant. It, it would flow beautifully and give us great sort of visuals. But if she was in a dialogue scene with Triton or she'd settled, it would just rest and be much calmer and more gentle. And it would have been nice to allow it to flow more and really sell the underwater, but at the same time, Rob felt it would be quite distracting if it was always constantly flowing. So both Triton and Ariel's hair was quite calm when they were in a dialogue scene. So the, the hair was a massive tell. And then on top of that, we, we used a lot of marine snow, which is sort of basic particulate, because that allowed us to put particulate in the water without actually making it cloudy or foggy. And that then allowed you to see underwater currents, or if somebody swam, you'd see the marine snow get sort of moved and the turbulence created through the wake. So that was another sort of device we used. All around you, there was plants, seaweeds, grasses. They were all moving with underwater currents, basically, just to keep selling the idea that you were underwater. And then any interaction, um, Sebastian's scuttling across the ground or he lands or then we'd have little kicks of sand or sort of sediment coming up from where his impacts were so we did everything we could to make it feel like it was underwater as well as obviously the viscosity of how people move and sort of trying to add a little of slowness and not making them move too quickly and that came through performances but as I say, we didn't go all the, all the way down the route of making it totally photorealistic because you'd have a film that no one could really watch, sadly. You know, it, it wasn't really an exercise in in a sort of a documentary filmmaking. It was supposed to be a beautiful children's, you know, 
live action film. I would imagine for all of the the CG characters, it was yeah, I'm sure it was a delicate balance with how photoreal to to be and how much fantasy. Would that be fair to say? It was. It was definitely. Rob wanted the characters, if we're talking about Sebastian, Scuttle, Flounder, any any of the other underwater creatures, you know, we see many different creatures from feather stars to dolphins to urchins, but he wanted them to be photorealistic. With the talking characters such as Sebastian, he wanted it to look like a real crab, and then when it talks, it talks, but he didn't want it to have lips as in the animated, you know, um, version of Sebastian. He didn't want them to be overly, well, he didn't really want them to be cartoony. He wanted them to be real animals that could then speak. So we obviously had, we based Sebastian on, on a ghost crab. Um, but, uh, you know, all of them are slightly modified. So obviously his color is, you know, true to the original animated film. But, you know, crabs have rather unpleasant mouths that you really wouldn't, wouldn't want to see a, a talking crab because they actually would be quite scary. So we had to give him simplified mouth shapes that allowed him to speak, but weren't overly, we didn't humanize anything. So we never gave him lips. We just tried to keep it sim- simplified and basic. At the end of the day, you shouldn't be thinking too much about him other than listening to what he's saying and getting some emotion from it. And given that crabs don't have many features and their eyes are on sticks. It also didn't give the animators much to play with. And as Rob didn't want them to be overly exaggerated, it was a very subtle balance between giving personality, but actually not taking it to an animated sort of cartoony world. And that was true for all of the characters, basically. We we we, we feel like we hit the right balance where people think or believe that they look like real animals, but they have the ability to talk. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I, I remember years ago talking about um, some of the early animation tests for Incredible Mr. Limpet, which never happened. I, I'm not comparing this to that movie, but in the broad sense, what were the general challenges to creating a believable CG fish in these environments? I mean, they're they're based on real animals. So flounder isn't based on a flounder because a flounder is a horrible flat fish. He's based on um, a sergeant major fish, uh, which is much more elegant and beautiful. And scuttle is based on a northern gannet. They're all subtly tweaked. Scuttle's got a little bit of everything in her. You know, she and she's not as scruffy as you know, the original character in the animated film, but we played around with the plumage a little bit just to make her less beautiful or less preened as a normal gannet would be because they're incredibly smooth-looking creatures. Um, the fish, as with anything to do with scales, and same for our mermaids, we, you know, we developed a whole system for creating iridescence within the scales of the fish, as we had for Halley's tail. They were the very early tests we did, basically, is to see how we could control iridescence 
because Hallie had a set of colors that had to be correct, you know, based on her design, you know, the pink, the green, the cyan blue. And we wanted to always have that running through her tail. But at the same time, know that if there was a specific shot where we wanted it, her to look like she had those colors, we could actually control how the iridescence worked. So flounder wasn't so difficult in, in that sense, but a sergeant major fish tends to be a black stripe, which has a little bit of subtle dark blue, depending on how the light catches the scale. So the, the, the stripe has the bluish iridescence there and then the yellow with gold. Flounder in the animated film was clearly a much stronger blue, um, but we started with a concept like that. We we made each of the animated characters more, uh, well, I would say closer to the colours of the original animated characters. And then as we started doing tests, they just didn't feel real, basically. It felt like we were in that weird, we're not quite real and we're, we're just a little bit too like the animated film. So we went back and referenced as I say, real creatures and, and actually did a little, took a step back and redesigned some of them so that they were closer to real fish, birds, crabs in the real world and actually and actually did a little re redesign on that. Because Rob just wanted them, you know, to be so real that if you saw flounder swimming along, you'd just think that was a sergeant major fish. And the fact that it could talk was the magic of the actual, you know, the film itself. Well, you created a tremendous number of underwater creatures. Um, many of them were featured in the uh, the Under the Sea number, but um, you know, also throughout the entire film. Would you elaborate a little bit on some of the research that was involved? We had a, a, a great team uh, in Los Angeles. We did a, a sort of a, a pre pre production in Los Angeles, where Rob and John DeLuca, John Meyer, Colleen, myself, uh, several of the HODs got together and spent a couple of months in Santa Monica working on ideas, John Meyer's early concepts for environment for um, sets and some of the underwater environments. And along with that, we had this fantastic research team who pulled together enormous amounts of uh, moving footage, stock footage, and it all got collated together. It became the inspiration for John Meyer's um, sort of underwater worlds, the corals that they found, everything was based from that. We actually found um, somebody who had spent a lot of time doing photogrammetry of real corals underwater, and we actually we actually bought several of the licensed several of those corals basically from from this this person, and then started sort of referencing all of the different material that had been put together to build our own library of um, sort of. Photorealistic um, corals, grasses, uh, yeah, everything that you would find underwater, basically. Uh, sort of being faithful to John's designs, but um, but you know, sort of keeping it in the real world. So when you know, interpreting interpreting um, sketches into what it would really look like, and as I say, the, the blue planet became a you know a real point of reference. Um, I think I can't remember how many episodes there were, but we we cut down a sort of reel of sort of highlights that you know became sort of a great point of reference for um, under the sea in terms of just you know 
how vivid the creatures could look, you know, in terms of color and all of the different parts of our world were at different depths. So Ursula's layer was obviously the deepest. And so we had a reference for what things would look like in that sort of depth. Ariel's world, Ariel's grotto was closest to the surface. And so we built up this library and used that as our um, main source throughout the whole film. And we still refer to it now, well, right up to the end, basically. What was the most challenging musical number to execute and why? I honestly think it's got to be under the sea simply because of the sheer volume of animation. Um, Pablo Grillo uh, took on that sequence with Framestore. And we we had this amazing sort of experience where Rob choreographed the musical dance break parts with the Alvin Ailey troupe. And they came over and performed for us. And we basically filmed them, giving us the dance breaks for the feather stars, the um, the limpets, the flatworms, the mimic octopus, the jellyfish. That's the principal's sort of dance break. Oh, yeah, there's the, the, the shaky hair girls. Basically, we had all these different amazing, and Colleen Atwood created amazing costumes for for them. Um, that she had these amazing feather boa type costumes for the feather stars, and all all sorts of different things that would allow you know the, the flat the girls who were dancing as the flatworms had these beautiful sort of flowing skirts that would allow them to mimic movement. So they really created the musical number themselves, and we we just filmed it from every different angle that material was cut together and then pablo and his team took all of those dance movements and interpreted them into well that's what the the dancer did so now the feather star which is and this incredible sort of sort of otherworldly creature how would based on how it moves we now need to interpret interpret those movements the dancer did into that creature, and Rob didn't want any of the creatures to move in a way that they couldn't move. So it was an incredible challenge. It was not only that, but keeping the rhythm and the the beats of the of each of the dance breaks, the actual musical numbers, conveying the essence of the dance, but making them move like they were photorealistically moving. Was it was a great challenge, and then on top of that, having just done one, they then had to do multiple variations where they were not just replicating the same creature. So it's not just one feather star times twenty. Each feather star is doing something subtly different every time, but still keeping the rhythm of the dance. So the thing about dance, Rob loves, is that you will get ten dancers, and they will all do something subtly different, but they're timing will be the same. So each of the characters had an individuality to them as well. And in some of the shots in Under the Sea, there were over 400 hand-animated characters within one shot. So as, as you can imagine, the actual physical man-hours alone just to, just, to, just to do this sort of volume of work and keep it all in sync, you know, was, was challenging to say the least. But you're working with Rob Marshall, who's an amazing choreographer, who understands dance, who had to 
put his faith and trust into our animators because unlike being on the floor where he could tell a dancer to do something different, he he basically had to allow Pablo and his team to interpret everything. And they formed a very close relationship through working together on this. And I would say most of the time got everything pretty spot on. And then Rob would give a note about a beat being wrong or the timing not being right. I mean, the little um, limpets were fantastic fun. And again, an homage to Fantasia, which was another starting point on Under the Sea, was to look at Fantasia and see how you take, you know, the mushrooms in Fantasia and turn them into, I think it was the little Cossack dancers. And the limpets were a similar idea. They were going to do something that a limpet wouldn't do, but it still had to be a limpet doing it. So that was real inspiration for all the animators, um, and it was a nice sort of sort of homage to Fantasia in that sense as well. Tremendous achievement. And then, of course, a large portion of the film also takes place above the water. Tell us about the visual effects challenges in those scenes. We, it's funny because the complexity of being under the water, above the water, we still have a very big film. And all of the more normal visual effects work involved in creating such a film. I mean, if there was a huge uh, challenge involved in Eric's ship for three major scenes involving uh, one in daytime, two at night, which culminated in a massive shipwreck, which for which we, the production designer, built a hundred foot large um, galleon on the back lot at Pinewood which we shot at uh, on blue screen and everything else is digital, obviously the water, the, the extension of the ship, the sails. And there's a, a lot of work involved in shipwreck sequence alone where a, a lot of digital ships, the crashing sequence, Hallie and Jonah were filmed in the water tank at Pinewood as well. So whenever they're in the surface of the water, they're in practical water with it, which involves extensions with wave machines moving them around. So there's a lot of environment work for the ocean sequences, but then there's the usual kind of work we did on the back lot. Um, the village scene was all blue screen. We did a location work in Sardinia, which was our island. Um, I had a team basically shooting plates. We had camera arrays shooting multiple camera plates for environments. We pretty much replaced every single sky in Sardinia um, for continuity. We replaced, I would say, 50 to 60% of the water in Sardinia because we had issues with the water not matching. We had practical actors in the water when it was too rough, so we'd have to shoot them in sort of calmer water, but then we'd have continuity problems. So a lot of the water you see when they're actually on the island is digital which you wouldn't expect, but that's the kind of thing, that invisible work that we often have to do. And then, of course, the castle was added. Um, additional environments were added to uh, the island itself. And then some of the smaller stuff, you know, the usual stuff, you get sets at Pinewood where we're just putting environments outside blue screen windows. So... It was it was a, a very full film. Uh, the visual effects were complex and varied, to say the least. 
And with the live action and the visual effects, I'm sure it was a real team effort. Uh, you, Rob, uh, cinematographer Dan BB. Absolutely. And an amazing team. Um, it, it was incredibly complex and everyone kept so calm. And there were, truthfully, we, we were so well prepared. There were no issues. I feel like everyone was fearful of filming the underwater sequences. And we actually got ahead of schedule when we were filming those because we were so well prepared. We were on location. Obviously, location throws up issues, you know, with weather and dealing with water. But again, nobody, nobody sort of let it get to them. We stuck together as one happy family. And um, and really, it was just a very, very friendly, good team of people to work with. Well, it must be exciting to see the movie hitting theaters this weekend. It, it is indeed. I can't wait. I, you know, it's. I, I'd love to get the audience reaction. Um, I think that's the true sort of reaction we're after, um, just to see how well it goes down. I'm hoping they're going to love it because I do feel it's an incredibly good film. Um, it, it stands on its own, um, uh, you know, as 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 a so unique piece of work and. The performances are fantastic. And I think in Hallie, we just have an absolute star. She and the cast were were incredible. <laughs> they, they they were. They really were. And oh, it's, it's silly to say, but we really couldn't have done it without her. Would you like to give a shout out to the visual effects team? Anything you'd like to say to them? Well, I'd like to say thank you to everybody, basically, for doing such an amazing job. It was a very long job, um, longer than we would have originally hoped. But as you're probably well aware, all the facilities have had a lot of problems since the pandemic shut so many productions down and then all productions came back on at once. And as a result, we were, you know, we were trying to trying our best to get through this film, but we were struggling for resources with everyone basically. And everyone stuck at it. And we went on for several months longer than we should have done, um, but we finally got there. It was a, a, a tremendous effort on behalf of everybody. So i just like to thank them all for their incredible hard work and sticking at it because it, it was a long one. And how are you feeling about the state of the visual effects industry right now? It's, it's somewhat crazy, if I'm honest, because, you know, having been in the business for 36 years now, um, working for the last 26 in film, I know what it was like 26 years ago in London. I know how hard it was to get a film in London. Uh, I know even after that period for several years, what a film would come into London and everyone would try and get the work on it. And it was like gold dust. And now there is just so much work. There is so much work through the, you know, it, which is fantastic for the industry, but um, it's all, it's, it's, it feels like, you know, you, you just, everything's having to grow so much, you know, it's, 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 it's a global industry and there aren't almost enough people to go around at the moment, given the demand. And it's, I just hope that, you know, quality doesn't suffer, that, you know, we are able to keep producing fantastic sort of looking visual effects. And, you know, that the companies themselves don't get overcome by 
the volume of work, you know, you've got to protect yourselves from, you know, sort of taking too much on. Uh, and there's so much work out there that it, it, it just, you know, for me, it's always been about the quality. And um, I hope we can maintain that standard. Thank you so much for your time and for um, for sharing how the film was made with all of us. And uh, And congratulations. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you.